this morning's Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 23, and it's the whole chapter. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And you are not to call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by a gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides! You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of your cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean.
In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody here and everyone online. My name is Shane. And like you, I'm a little bit taken aback when you hear the most loving and righteous and sinless guy on earth stand in front of someone and say, you're a snake and how will you ever escape hell? You know that person's in trouble. That's full on, isn't it? Yeah? I think it's full on. So in the last few weeks and months, and Nicola prayed about this, we've heard a lot about elections, we've heard a lot about masks. And so here's a trigger warning. We're going to hear more about elections and masks this morning. And so if you want to leave right now, I would understand. I would get that. That would be okay. But I don't reckon it would be the best idea. Because Jesus has got something to say to us this morning about elections and masks. Because if you've been reading Matthew, or if you've read Matthew before, you might have noticed that Jesus is actually in election week. Jesus is in a week that will determine his fate and the fate of the people who follow him. Chapter 21 of Matthew, there's this thing called the triumphal entry. After three years of announcements, after three years of public address, Jesus came into Jerusalem, the capital, and the people said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was his uh, announcement that he is officially a candidate to be called God's Messiah. And election week began. Election week is also called Passion Week. This is the week that will lead up to the death of Jesus. And in this week, starting at chapter 21 with the triumphal entry, we then saw the things you often see. Public debate. This dominated chapter 22. 
where Jesus went up against pretty much any candidate for Jewish leadership. If you're paying attention in chapter 22, you would have seen encounters with guys called Pharisees, teachers of the law. You would have seen encounters with chief priests. You would have seen encounters with Sadducees. You would have seen encounters even with Herodians. These are all different kinds of Jews who might, and who currently do, lead different parts of life in Israel. And Jesus has been wrangling, answering questions, debating with all of them. So we have the announcing of his candidacy, we have the public debates, and we await the results. You'll have to wait until a very precious Sunday for the results because Jesus has hung everything on the fact that God will cast his vote. When they put him to death, God will cast his vote and raise him from the grave, declaring that he is everything he said he would be. So here we find ourselves in election week. And in verse 1 of chapter 23, we get the beginning of Jesus' last public address before everyone goes to the polls. This is the last time Jesus will speak publicly before he goes to his unique poll, which of course is the cross. We're at the hands of wicked people. They voted no, but at the resurrection, God will vote Yes. And so in his last public address, Jesus is going to highlight two significant things. The position that is at stake and the candidates that vie for it. The position that's at stake and the candidates that vie for it. Verse 2, he begins to speak about the position. Let me read it. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, for you and I, we just hear Moses' seat as one of those kind of Bible things Jesus says from time to time, but Jesus just pointed to the center of life for these people. In every Jewish town, or at the center of Jewish life, is a thing called synagogue. Now, we've got a picture of a synagogue that I once visited uh, that'll come up on the screen for you. This is a synagogue, or the ruins of a synagogue, in a place Jesus actually pronounced a woe on. It's called Chorazin. That's what remains to this day of the synagogue. The synagogue, and which means sit together, is the center of life for the Jewish community. This is where everyone comes to be together, to hear the law of God, Uh, to see how they should be as God's people. Interestingly enough, this will blow your mind, guess where the door is for the synagogue? It's at the very front. You do not want to be late to synagogue because everyone's, imagine like if you're late this morning, you're walking in from there right now and everyone's marking the roll as you come in. Hey everyone, I'm here. Better late than never, right? Um, Well, that's how it works in synagogue. You come in from the front. There's something else that's really important at the front, and it looks like this. You'll see it on the screen. This is the seat of Moses, or the Moses seat. Now, on this seat, this is where authoritative teaching came from. The synagogue is at the center of Jewish life, and at the center of this, well, at the front, but metaphorically, at the center of the synagogue is the seat of Moses. This is where somebody teaches. 
This is where someone is saying, this is what God wants to do with us. This is who God is. This is God's law. This is God's way. This is the seat that is center and authoritative in the life of these people. And so when Jesus says they've sat in the seat of Moses, he's not just saying, oh, look, they are, they've, they've made themselves pretty important. He's saying these people have moved themselves into the chair, the chair of authority. Now, God had made a promise, and he shared this promise through Moses. Moses was the prophet. When you think prophet, think one who starts a lot of sentences with, thus says the Lord. They speak God's words. Moses was a guy who, who, who led God's people out of slavery and gave them the law. And God said to Moses, back here, and I'll read it for you in Deuteronomy 18. He says these words. I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that that prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. God had promised that a day was coming where a prophet like Moses who spoke with this kind of authority would actually sit in Moses' seat. Now other prophets had come, you got your Samuels, you got your Elijahs, you got your Elishas, you got your Nathans, you got all these guys. But God's promise waited for someone who would be the great prophet like Moses and occupy Moses' chair. Well, Jesus says, hey, these guys have come along and they've sat in that spot in in your synagogues and they would seem to want to occupy that, that spot in the life of God's people. They've sat there. But Matthew, our author, also tells us something else that God has done in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, there's this weird moment that I hope by the time I die, I understand better than I do now, called the transfiguration. And at this point, Jesus, with a select few, is on a mountaintop, and part of the select few are two great prophets, Elijah and Moses himself. And at that point, God speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At that point, God is installing Jesus as the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18, saying, this is the man, this is the one who will speak authoritatively. And it's Jesus' authoritative speaking that's rubbed some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law the wrong way. But God says, this is the guy who's going to sit in the chair. The position at stake is, who will be God's prophet? Who speaks with authority? Whose words will represent God and shape the lives of God's people? And so Jesus says, well, let me tell you about the candidates for the role. He says, right now, there's me or there's the Pharisees and teachers of the law. In Jesus' assessment, he begins by being ironic, verses 2 to 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Jesus is being quite ironic at that point. He's saying, look, they've bagged the chair, 
they've called shotgun, so you better listen up to them, even though they don't listen to themselves. You better do all the things that they say to do, even though they themselves don't do it. Oh, but, but, but you should listen up. Jesus is being ironic with a touch of sarcasm at this point. Jesus moves from ironic to being critical. Verse 4. They don't help. He says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus goes from ironic to critical. He says, These candidates for the seat of Moses, they don't actually help you. What they do is they burden you. They weigh you down. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, he's explaining that what the teachers of the law and this particular part of Judaism Pharisees did is they built laws on top of laws. Now, you could argue their intention might have been a good one. They actually referred to themselves as the men who build the hedge. What they meant by that is they were building a hedge of protection around the law of God. Somehow they had decided that God's law, as precious as it was, we should move everyone back a step from that with man-made laws on top of God's laws. Here's what they didn't understand. God's law reveals God. God's law is God's wisdom. And God's law, with its anticipation of sin, delivers not only God's wisdom and God's standard, but God's grace as well. These men who built their hedge of protection, their law around God's law, actually have nullified God's law. They've moved everyone back a step from God. They've placed a heavier burden. And unlike God's law that is gracious, their law is condemning. And so Jesus says, you put these guys in the chair, and what they do is they just make life harder with their man-made laws. He moves from ironic to critical to condemning. Verses 5 to 7, let me read. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Phylacteries are these boxes that Jews to this day often still wear. If you go to Israel, you'll see it. Little box containing some precious scriptures, often tied to the head or tied to the arm. They are like the people who turn up at church with a forklift to bring their giant Bible. And they open it up. Boof! I love the word of God. Giant box on their head just so everyone can see how precious God's law is to them. The tassels, which all Jews wore, Jesus would have worn them too, they make them extra long. Giant cross so everyone can see. See how Christian I am? Giant cross, bad back, my cross is so big. It's the kind of guys these are. Jesus condemns them. He says it's a show. All this stuff is never about God. It's not about people. It's about them. These candidates are about themselves. Jesus moved from ironic to critical to condemning. In verse 8, Jesus moves to prescriptive. Jesus is saying with his words in verse 8, reject their leadership. Reject their leadership, their teaching, and the pattern it forms among you. And Jesus goes on to condemn some of the titles that they desire to give themselves that these people themselves might start to reach for. Now let me say a quick word. This is not a reason for any of us to be disrespectful. 
You meet a rabbi from a Jewish community and his custom is to be called rabbi, just show the man some respect, call him rabbi. You meet a Roman Catholic priest and his custom is to be called father, just call the man father, show him respect. Someone study for a doctorate, call him doctor. They'll probably ask you not to. In this context, Jesus is saying of those who sit in that Moses chair, they've reached for an authority not their own. And so he says of the candidates, they are not your teacher. I am your teacher. I'm the one from the transfiguration. I am the one who belongs in Moses' chair. Don't call them father like they made these laws. The law of God comes from God your father who is, heaven, who is in heaven, the one who sent me. And don't call them instructor and don't call yourself instructor. Who is your instructor? The Messiah and I am him. Now before you start to think, whoa, this Jesus sounds like just another politician who's been sarcastic, who's been critical and has been condemning of his political rival, listen to the last things he says, verse 11. Verse 11, and Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. We immediately think of ourselves, but stand in the place of Jesus' first audience. He's saying, I'll be the teacher. God is your father. I'm your Messiah and instructor. I'm the greatest. And I'll be your servant. Do you see the significant contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees and teachers of the law who tie up heavy burdens, burdens of their own, but won't lift a finger to help? But here comes God's prophet, God's man, God's Messiah in the Moses seat who says, and I as the greatest will be your servants. And he says this just days before his service will be to offer his life and pay for our sin and their sin as he dies on a Roman cross. Have you ever met a candidate for election who delivers on the promises before he's even elected? That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus of history. That's the Jesus of integrity who does what he says he will do. And he does it in the service of others. And so he is able to say, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, like the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But those who humble themselves, like him, will be lifted up, will be raised. Here's Jesus. The position at stake is the seat of Moses. You see the candidates And his summary is, life under the Pharisees and teachers of the law is to be weighed down and burdened. But life under me is to be served and lifted up. I know where I want to cast my vote. I vote for Jesus. Now, one of the big election issues at this point is, of course, masks. Masks, masks, masks. To understand what is about to happen with masks, we've got to go back into Jesus' early history. I kind of have a theory that every preacher you ever hear, you hear a little bit of their past life come out to bear in how they communicate. And I don't think that's different for Jesus. You see, Jesus is this guy from Nazareth 
who we commonly refer to as a carpenter, but probably more accurately, a skilled tool worker. Just like his dad, his earthly father, Joseph. Now, about six kilometres from Nazareth, of cover-up and show to be hypocrites. And now Jesus speaks of Jerusalem in verse 37. Jerusalem that has so thoroughly rejected him under the leadership of men such as these. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, you're covered in the masks that weigh you down when I came to cover you in wings. Covered in a mask, hiding when I wanted to cover you in wings. Covered and weighed down when I wanted to cover and lift up. And so you're left desolate because that's what happens when the Messiah is rejected. And did you notice the bookmark of words that are used? When Jesus announced his candidacy, or it was announced at the triumphal entry, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This could be king. And Jesus here finishes his speech. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see me again until the results are in. God has cast his votes, and any honest speaking person will have to say, there is the king, there is the prophet, there is God's son. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the church Jesus dreamed of, simply not a church of masks. The church Jesus dreamed of is a church that's authentic, it's not ruled by men and their rules and their condemnation. It's authentic. It's ruled by him with the currency of grace. It is why we stitched into the mission. The thing we want to do here at Fig Tree is to build a community of grace committed to making followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not want followers of the people who are the most beautiful or the people who are the most gifted. I'm, I know I'm describing Ian. We don't want followers of Ian Barnett. We want followers of the God that Ian's following. I don't want little Shane bots. Try as you may, you'll never be Greg Bell. The guy's a virtuoso. He's the maestro. We want a community that are disciples of Jesus because disciples of Jesus live in a currency of grace. Jesus' grace shapes who we are together. That's who we're trying to be. That's what we're trying to do. And I don't know, maybe this morning, maybe you pre-read Matthew or as um, Philip was reading it to us, you heard all this hypocrite stuff and you thought, oh, we're going to get a serve this morning. I can't wait for that hypocrite woman who sits on the other side of church to get her serve from the preacher. And maybe that's what you wanted to happen. I'm not doing that this morning. That's not what we need this morning. I think we need something that was demonstrated to me in a story that goes way back about 30 years. This is a story of two of my friends, Steve and Michael. 
Michael was an unbeliever, wanted to get married. So he contacted his local church where Steve happened to be the pastor. Yeah, I want to get married. Steve said, all right, well, I'll come out and visit you and your fiance. Steve goes out. Michael had determined that he was going to be deliberately antagonistic during the visit. So they sit down, Michael's home, and Michael says to Steve, I'd never come to church. The place is full of hypocrites. And Steve, who was a pastor of the church, said, Michael, that's just not true. Michael said, yeah, it is. You're full of hypocrites. Steve said, no, mate, we're not full. I love that story for a number of reasons. One, it's a giggle. Two, Michael and his family came to know and love the Lord and be established in that very church. And because Steve spoke the truth that day, he didn't deny, he didn't try to pretend or wear a mask. No, no, everyone at our church, not like those other ones, we're all in, in, yeah, people of integrity. We always do what we say. He told the truth. They're not full. The church Jesus dreamed of, the vision Jesus has for us is that we wouldn't be a church of masks. It would be a church where it's a gracious community and when you mess it up, we don't try to mask it. You just come as a sinner who delights in being saved by the God who saves, by the one who sat in the seat of Moses, the greatest one who came to serve. The church Jesus dreams of is a church where there's no need for anyone to pretend, where there's no need for anyone to feel obligated. No one ever need feel guilted or shamed. No one ever need to be or feel coerced. No one ever need to look sideways to make sure you're doing it just as well as that person that you figured isn't too Christian, but not too bad. But if we just keep pace with them, then then we'll kind of be all right. The church Jesus dreamed of, you never need that. I acknowledge that hasn't always been the experience of every person who has ever been a part of any church. But this is the vision that Jesus has for us. Not perfection, but graciously loving one another and depending upon the God who is perfect. Brothers and sisters, as I finish, let me say a word on making your life count. The way to make your life count is not to wear a mask of perfection. The way to make your life count in the church that Jesus dreamed of is to remove the mask and enjoy life, not under the laws of people, but as part of the gracious community led by Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have installed him as the authoritative teacher, that his word stands and not the words of any human being. Father God, we thank you that his words are words of wisdom, but, oh Lord, we thank you that his words are words of grace, and we thank you that his words are words that he fulfills by rescuing us at the cross. Gracious Father, this morning by your Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would enlighten all of our hearts, that you would bring a new spirit of the best kind of courage to come upon us, 
a courage that says, Jesus has died for me, my sin is paid for, and I never need to wear a mask. I don't need to impress anybody. I don't need to do the dance. I don't need to do the acts. I simply need to come as I am to the cross of Christ. And so, Father God, we pray that you would help us to resist that temptation we so often have as you are conforming us to the likeness of Christ to now not set standards for everybody, but instead to be gracious, to offer fresh starts, and to offer one hope and one hope alone. Not a hope of sin management as I try to be better, but a hope of sin obliteration which Jesus did at the cross for us. And so, Father God, may the masks be removed, may we be who we are, and may we trust wholly and solely in the one who died to save us. In his name we pray. Amen.